It's Thursday, January 16th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Lawmakers prepare to take on cap and trade legislation again in Salem. More funding is allocated for homeless services in Lane County. The University of Oregon considers a fixed tuition model. The U of O student paper works to improve public trust in the media. Local fast food chain Taco Time turns 60. And more insights into the latest on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. These stories and more in this episode of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to KLCC's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald. And I'm reporter Brian Bull. I'm reporting fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. Ani, it's another busy week of news. What were some of the top stories we heard on KLCC? So let's start with the good news first. We all know that the weather has been, you know, not great to walk around in, let's just say. We're not supposed to add value judgments to the weather, but, you know, it's been kind of unpleasant outside lately. However, for those of us that have been up in the mountains or enjoy a good snowfall, uh, there's now good news. Widespread snowstorms over the past couple weeks have boosted Oregon's previously anemic snowpack to almost normal levels statewide in just two weeks. Um, the biggest improvements in what's called snow water equivalent were in the Hood, Sandy, and Lower Deschutes basins. I love this statistic because it's so striking. Those areas were at 26% of normal on December 30th, and now they're at 90% of normal. And again, that's in just two weeks. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's that's pretty right. incredible. So last year, a similar thing happened in Oregon. Uh, it was just a little later. It was in February, but this year it's happening in January. So yay skiing and snowboarding and winter sports and sorry to everybody who has to walk around in the rain. <laughs> and yay for um, water supplies. Well, well, exactly. Yes. So the good news is that for those of us that are kind of grumbling about some of the grayer, colder weather that we're having now, it actually is really good news for this summer when it turns to that dry time of year. And this is especially critical, um, especially in eastern Oregon, because they get water for their farms from this snowpack. So it actually is really important. So don't complain about the weather. <laughs> My kids are going to complain about the weather because uh, Lane County and our part of it, there were no school closures or delays, uh, plenty in other regions, but uh, not, not for our corner. It's true. Portland and actually up in Washington got like heavily dumped on this week and we really saw basically nothing. Kind of the outlying areas got a little bit more, but we basically saw nothing. But hey, there's still plenty of time before winter's over. So I seem to remember a snowstorm several years ago on my birthday, which is the first day of spring. So we still have plenty of time. I recall a a snowstorm in late February of last year that uh, was noticeable. Do you mean you were stuck in your house for several days, Ryan? Yeah, something like that. Okay, so we're going to move on to the state legislature because obviously they are kind of getting things going again. And so there's a lot of news coming out of Salem. A climate change bill that promises to dominate this year's session got its first public hearing earlier this week. Now, this is that cap-and-trade proposal. It's kind of a rewriting of the one that caused so much controversy. First, I want to explain kind of what cap-and-trade is because I even get confused when I try and remember. So we're just going to go over a description and then I'll, I'll tell you what's happening now. 
So the way this works is the bill would force big greenhouse gas emitters to obtain credits for each ton of gas they emit and create an overall cap for allowed emissions. The cap would lower slowly over time, ensuring that Oregon meets stringent conservation targets in both 2035 and 2050. So the new bill, um, the authors say it's a first draft. It was written mostly by Senate Democrats, and it'll be tweaked during this 35 It'll be tweaked during the 35-day session that begins on February 3rd. The new version, and this is the this is how it's different from last year's version, um, has a lot of changes designed to kind of comfort critics in the manufacturing and utility sectors and create fewer impacts for rural Oregon. Now, this is where you start to see those splits in our state among between like basically the Willamette Valley, some areas on the coast and maybe Bend, and then areas of Oregon that tend to vote a little bit more conservatively. And there's a reason for this. Um, one of them is rather than uniform statewide regulation of automotive fuels, this new proposal splits the state into three geographic zones that would be phased in separately. This is kind of to address concerns that cap and trade would hike gas prices statewide, and this would disproportionately affect rural communities where everybody has to drive all the time really far distances, whereas those of us who live in more urban areas can walk or bike or have access to public transportation. Now, will the Republicans stage a walkout and actually leave the state like they did last year, forcing the state police to kind of go after them, it all remains to be seen. The Republicans are already threatening that. So we'll see. I picture them being fitted with ankle monitors as they enter uh, the legislative house for their daily business, but uh, maybe that's just fanciful imagination. No comment. <laughs> um, so also in Salem, Governor Brown wants a major expansion in the state's wildfire response plans. Now, we all know that wildfires are a really big deal in the Pacific Northwest once we get into those drier, you know, kind of August, September months. So some of the changes she wants to make is calling for land use planning changes, new building codes and requirements for defensible spaces around homes to reduce the risk of wildfires damaging residential areas. And the changes require new standards for residential smoke filtration systems to protect people from the health risks of wildfire smoke. And of course, we see those warnings all summer where there's those air quality alerts or you know, you smell like a campfire whenever you go outside. So the problem, of course, because this all sounds like a good idea, we want to like have an easier time fighting wildfires. The problem is, is that it's all about the Benjamins. Lawmakers say the plan will have to produce its own revenue through logging because they're already facing demands for funding to help with other major problems in the state like foster care, mental health care, homelessness, Medicaid, and PERS. So it sounds like Oregon is facing just basically revenue, not enough revenue to go around. Right. And so, of course, this is, you know, we already dedicated all this money to the education spending bill. And I think just reading into this a little bit that one of the issues with collecting revenue through logging is that, you know, too much logging can lead to more wildfires when you leave huge areas without any trees. Um, it kind of creates that like drier, you know, environment. So I don't know how they're going to fix this, but obviously wildfires aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And logging isn't necessarily guaranteed revenue because it's dependent on market conditions. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is also affected by like the USMCA and the trade deal with China. So, uh, you know, there's there's many balls in the air. So we had the news last weekend that a seven-year-old girl died and a four-year-old boy is missing after they were swept into the ocean in the Falcon Cove area near the Clatsop-Tillamook County line last weekend. Their father was treated at Providence Seaside Hospital for hypothermia. The search for the boy has officially been called off. 
just a small word about sneaker waves. As as I was reading the news this weekend, I was actually hanging out on my couch with a friend from the Bay Area, and she was kind of making light of sneaker waves and how she goes to this beach frequently where sneaker waves are and gets warned, but it's not a big deal. They're sneaker waves. That must mean they're small. So I pulled up a video, which you could find very easily on YouTube, of sneaker waves to show her what they actually look like. They have a cute name, but they're really, really dangerous. They can suddenly knock people off their feet and quickly pull them into the frigid ocean, and they're much bigger and stronger than you think. So if you want to check out king tides or sneaker waves when there's warnings about them, just do it from like really, really far away. And uh, I was at the uh, North Jetty of Florence with my family a couple years back, and my one of my sons was on a large log and you think, well, he's fine, he's on a log, you know what can happen. But a sneaker wave came right in and about rolled him under it because it hit it hard, he lost his balance, and if he hadn't moved fast enough, that log could have just simply <laughs> crushed my son. So, yeah, again, the, the name is a little misleading because it sounds kind of cute, but, yeah, you really have to be keeping an eye on the ocean at all times. There was a major news story um, that some South Eugene students several years ago were killed actually doing exactly that, playing on a log on a beach when a sneaker wave, you know, kind of rolled over them. Um, And I think also, like, I've spent a lot of time in my childhood in Seaside, actually, at this at these beaches in this area. And I don't know. I mean, I think I just being raised with a healthy, like, just never turn your back to the ocean. It's very powerful and it's pretty from far away, but to constantly be careful because it doesn't really care about you or your body being on the beach. So just be careful out there. So my stories this week, uh, first off, had to deal with the expansion of homeless funding. Uh, The city of Eugene and Lane County jointly reviewed their budgets and managed to come up with $257,000 for providing more beds to the dusk to dawn encampment off of Highway 99. Uh, They will now be able to expand from 192 to 250 people per night in just a little bit. I was talking with uh, Jason Davis of Lane County Health and Human Services, and he says already they're starting to put in those new beds so that that they can accommodate uh, more people for an overnight stay. Uh, The city and county also came up with $91,000 to keep the current business hours uh, going at the Eugene service station. The ESS provides homeless people with warmth, daytime shelter, clothes, laundry, showers, food, some very essential basic needs. Here's uh, Davis again, just kind of talking about why this is all important. That's really great news for folks this time of year who are just looking for a warm place to stay. And then we also are expanding those services, which help connect people to additional supports, things like warm clothes, um, onto wait lists for other services, et cetera. And that can mean the difference between a very, very cold night and, and getting the help you need, and sometimes even life and death for some folks. Many resources across the metro area are operating at capacity. Uh, Some months back, the head of uh, St. Vincent de Paul was saying that uh, hard drugs are actually driving early numbers to the Dusk to Dawn shelter, which which was already at capacity much earlier than they anticipated. And there is no sign of homelessness abating in Eugene. Local officials are urging patients as they implement the uh, 10-point TAC plan, it's called, and develop more supportive housing and a 75-bed open shelter. Uh, The other piece I'm working on is a a series of sessions that are being held across the state's tribal communities, uh, tribal reservations, but also urban centers, which would include at least one, maybe two locations in Portland and then also here at the University of Oregon. Uh, Tuesday night at the University of Oregon's Many Nations Longhouse, there were about 30 people assembled um, for what was billed as the... uh, 
listening and understanding tour. And among the people there was State Representative Tana Sanchez. She sponsored House Bill 2625, which Governor Brown signed into law last year. And basically what it does is it um, allows the Oregon State Police to conduct a study into the effectiveness or how to improve the efficiency of investigating the cases of missing and murdered Native American women. Uh, There are roughly about 5,700 cases across North America, including Oregon. And uh, here's Sanchez talking about the problems facing Native American women as it pertains to domestic violence and potential threats to their well-being. The distance between often where law enforcement is and where an incident may occur could be an hour away or more. So a lot of things can happen within that time. And it makes it really, really difficult. A lot of intimidation possibly with people who may have witnessed or know something about the crime. That may be an issue. It may be an issue with so-and-so's, this is so-and-so's relative who did this. And and you don't want to step in the middle of that, that type of thing. People have indicated that those things do still occur. The testimony uh, shared by the students present was often emotional and fraught with feelings of futility, despair, and fear. Uh, Many want this bill to succeed in having the Oregon State Police study on how best to investigate and improve response to cases of missing and murdered indigenous women. And the tricky part is is that many tribal communities, at least out on reservations, they tend to be remote. Uh, People tend to live scattered across the reservation. The tribal police may be small, underfunded, and not adequately suited to prepare to address these cases. So going forward, they're hoping to really improve on these rates starting here in Oregon. Well, we look forward to hearing your story, Brian. Thank you. Elizabeth, you've been very busy this week. What are some of the stories you've been working on? So some of my stories, or basically all of my stories, are all things education. So Wednesday night, I went to the first Eugene 4J school board meeting of the year, and this was the first meeting that started at 6 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock, which was part of the time change trial that they're doing through February. The school board meeting still lasted three hours, but in theory, the school board time change is supposed to get more people to attend the meeting by making it more accessible to more community members. The school board members decided to renew the contract for Ridgeline Montessori Public Charter School. And for those who don't know, this is a school that uses a scientific method of learning to provide a self-directed and hands-on learning environment for students. Um, And at the previous school board meeting, about 10 people spoke on behalf of the school. And so I assume a lot of those people are excited to have that contract renewed for another 10 years. And so in other education news, the U of O is considering a fixed tuition model. And this is the first time they've considered a model like this since 2015. So basically the model would fix tuition for about five years for each incoming class. And in theory, this is supposed to be very exciting for students. Students will know about how much they will pay whenever they go to college. However, a lot of faculty members and students have voiced concerns because this could be a liability for the school. So if there's ever state budget cuts or a recession, the school wouldn't be able to increase tuition for all students. They would only be able to increase tuition for incoming classes. Um, And... For those who don't know, tuition is about 45 to 50 percent of the school's budget. That's a huge challenge that they could face if something were to happen to funding. 
So you've attended a meeting about the tuition proposal. What happens next with this? What will they be doing with this input from the students and faculty? Um, They may or may not have another student forum, and then the Tuition and Fees Advisory Board will make a recommendation to President Michael Schill, and then after that, President Schill will make a recommendation to the Board of Trustees, who ultimately decides whether or not they will go forward with this model. Okay. Well, I visited the Emerald Media Group this week on the University of Oregon campus where the student paper has started a project called the Emerald Trust Project. And the idea is that there's a lot of distrust and misunderstanding of the media, and they're trying to rebuild that trust. Francis O'Leary is coordinator of equity and inclusion at the Oregon Daily Emerald. And they say after some controversies at other student papers, they wanted to get ahead of the issue. It's not enough just to be a good journalist. You have to give people a reason to trust you. They're not just going, they don't owe you trust. You owe them a reason to trust you. So after that, um, we started deciding we needed to work on it. We needed to do something about it to try and... Uh, remedy any sort of lack of trust and and get ahead of any controversy that we would have. My interview with O'Leary and the editor of The Emerald at klcc.org. I think one of the things that we talked about at a a, a morning edition convention that I went to last year, um, along with Love Cross, was um, a seminar we had about trusting news, basically, which is feeling okay about pulling back the curtain a little bit on our process and how we talk to sources and how we find sources and how we write our stories, spots, everything, so that there is less reason for people to kind of question where that stuff is coming from. Um, And that can be everything from just showing you behind the scenes of how the mornings work at KLCC to a reporter not only, you know, kind of... um, presenting a feature, but then also maybe in a separate place showing how they made that feature so that, you know, there's kind of, like I said, the curtain is pulled back on the process because it shouldn't be this mysterious thing that happens behind a screen like The Wizard of Oz. You know, listening to your interview was really, it reminded me that like that trust isn't guaranteed. It is something that we have to earn. And some people are not worthy of that trust, some news organizations, and some are. You're listening to the Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. the Northwest Passage from KLCC News. I'm Rachel McDonald with Ani Katz, Brian Bull, and Elizabeth Gabriel. And what's sticking with you this week from the news or elsewhere? Let's start with Elizabeth. So speaking of the Daily Emerald, I just looked at a article that they wrote, and it said that Airbnb has ranked Eugene 7th as one of the most cities to see a significant increase in visitors, which I thought was really interesting given the 2020 Olympic trials coming up. So hopefully we'll see even more visitors. Right. I think um, I think our reporter Mallory Breguet had a story on that regarding new rules that the Eugene City Council is considering on things like Airbnb. And, and, and that was something mentioned that Eugene is among the top places for Airbnb, which... Yeah, we'll probably see that increase. 
But yeah, the article did talk about how a lot of Airbnb owners are scared that the city council will kind of adjust regulations and kind of get rid of Airbnbs. The reporter did speak to one of the city council members and the city council member said they're not trying to get rid of Airbnbs. They don't want people to be scared of that, but they will have a new outline of ordinances coming soon, I think in May, April or May. Well, I just want to say how much I'm enjoying having the daily from the New York Times on KLCC now. I got to listen to the whole thing while cooking dinner the other evening um, since we're airing it at 6.30 on weekdays. And it was about the Russians' plans to once again hack the U.S. election. They're using some of the same methods they used in 2016. And um, this was a great deep dive look at the situation, and I learned a lot from it. I really recommend listeners tune into the daily uh, because it's just, it's a really different kind of program than what we've had in in the past. And just from this particular episode, one of the takeaways that I would advise is make sure you have two-factor authentication for all your email and social media accounts, because that's one of the ways that Russian hackers are getting into our personal information and possibly being able to access our voting I can't emphasize enough. It is such a good program. And I've been podcasting it for a while, but now I get to listen to it while I'm cooking dinner. So I also love the new schedule. I also got to hear a little bit of PRX Remix, which is on Wednesday evenings. And that was really great. It just takes different stories that public radio stations have done and sends them out to you. So stories from different stations, looking at different issues. This was another great show. So check it out. Um, You can find our schedule at klcc.org. So we're just going to continue to keep this all about the Sussexes, like for the next several weeks, I guess. Can we just have this be like the royal, you know, ending of the show every week? Um, On Ani's Sussex Corner. (laughs) Oh, my God. Don't tempt me. (laughs) It's my new blog. So last week, we kind of ended on this, I don't know what's going to happen note. But over the weekend, um, basically, the staffs of all the different kind of royal families uh, gathered together at Sandringham, which is one of the Queen's castles. And um, Harry was there, William was there, uh, Prince Charles was there, and obviously the Queen, Meghan, uh, went back to Canada and was supposed to call in. She did not. Um, And at the end of the weekend, this was, again, to kind of figure out exactly what this picture is going to look like with the Sussexes leaving and becoming non-senior members of the royal family, but still working on behalf of the Queen, but also making money independently very confusing situation. So we got this really incredible statement from the Queen at the end of the weekend where she used the word, I'm not going to read it, but um, you can find it online really easily, where she used the, it was very personal and it was very like my family, my family, my family, instead of the Queen believes, you know, so it made it very personal. And I'm going to mention this blog again, because I think it's just great for all things royal. If you're into that stuff like I am, it's so many thoughts by Elizabeth Holmes. And one of the things she really encourages is team both is really looking at both sides that this is a situation that's never happened before and to look at the queen is not only the queen but she's also a grandmother of these two boys whose mother was lost when they were very very young and um you know that she's really trying to be it was very clear from the statement that she's trying to be very supportive of harry but she also is the queen and has that job basically to do so um the fallout continues. Everybody's obviously like trying to find Megan in Vancouver and they did. She did this like 
very private, you know, uh, appearance this week at a at a nonprofit organization. Harry's in England, and apparently he'll be joining her and Archie sometime very soon in their new home, which has officially been named as Canada. Before it was North America. Now we know it is Canada because that's a part of the Commonwealth. So appropriate choice there. And um, we're just going to continue to watch, or I am at least. You can too. So Brian, what else is sticking with you from the news? Well, here's a uh, local and national story that sprang right out of here in Eugene uh, 60 years ago this week. January 15th marked 60 years since a man named Roy Frederick opened his Taco Time restaurant on the corner of 13th and High Street, uh, very ideally located near the University of Oregon. Uh, He was a Navy veteran. He didn't want to pursue his family's heating oil business indefinitely, so he wanted to just simply share uh, Mexican fast food, as he came to know it, in uh, Southern California. And uh, since he opened that very first Taco Time, it's now spread to a sizable franchise. I think it is the biggest and oldest for a Eugene-based food chain. I talked to uh, Frederick's daughter, Kim, on her earliest memories of helping her dad with this venture when she was just seven. I started working there before I could actually see over the counter. My sister did, too. My dad, he just loved Taco Time. He loved the business. He loved bringing it up from nothing, starting it in Eugene, Oregon. No one knew what a taco was. I went there every day for lunch during high school. And usually took a bunch of friends. Taco Time has expanded to many far-flung corners of the world, locations uh, once being found in places like Greece, Japan, Kuwait, and even the Mall of America. It's primarily now in the Rockies and Pacific Northwest. Teen Brian and his classmates 35 years ago often hung out at the Taco Times in Lewiston, Idaho, and Clarkston, Washington. You had the basic staples, tacos and burritos, but also more novelty, kitschy items like Mexi fries, taco burgers, crustos, and what are called winettos, uh, which is a tortilla-wrapped hot dog, were also on the menu. And what was your favorite? I am a big fan of the taco burger and Mexi fry combo. Okay. Uh, but yeah, they they tend to do pretty good with most of their fare. You know, again, it's it's quasi Mexican American type fast food fare, but I still hold it uh, above other rival chains to this day. Thanks for joining us for this week's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. I'm Brian Bull, reporter in Eugene. And I'm reporting fellow Elizabeth Gabriel. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Music for the Northwest Passage podcast is composed and performed by Don Latarski. Mm-hmm.